hard to differentiate between the weekdays and weekend, but we made it. Happy Saturday. Welcome into the Sports Kiki Podcast. My name is Alex Reamer. Thank you, as always, for making us a part of your routine. You can find the show wherever podcasts are found. We are proud to be part of the Outsports Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. All we ask is you listen and download. want to thank everybody again for all the feedback for our show last week, our interview with Connecticut Sun head coach Kurt Miller. If you missed it, I highly encourage you go back and check it out, not just because we always want to increase our download numbers, but because uh, it was a great conversation. We talked to Kurt about uh, his reflections on coming out five years later, some lessons he's learned over the last half decade, his thoughts on the lack of media coverage the WNBA receives in comparison to the NBA and other male professional sports leagues. And uh, I think perhaps most interestingly, we talked about some personal reflections that Kurt's undergone during this coronavirus lockdown. He's one of the most intense coaches, not just in women's basketball, but all of basketball. He spent many uh, sleepless nights in his office. He even suffered a small stroke on the sidelines of a game in 2012. And uh, Kurt told me uh, that he's taken a lot of time here over the last month or so and really reevaluated a lot of his life priorities, placing more of an emphasis on family and friends than he did before. So always appreciate it. When people come on the show, open up. So if you did not listen to the conversation with Kurt Miller last week, highly encourage that you do so. I think we have another great show coming up for you this week, which, uh, well, at least I should think that since I am the host of this podcast. It certainly would be troubling if I didn't think we had a good show coming up. But uh, one of the main stories that's been going around with the coronavirus over the last couple days as we're getting more and more data about who's infected, how they're infected, uh, is this disease, this virus, is infecting and killing people of color at disproportionately high rates throughout the country. It's also infecting and killing uh, people in low-income neighborhoods, people in marginalized communities such as the LGBTQ community. Uh, So to help us really understand this and how the coronavirus, more than anything else, is exposing the gross inequities in our healthcare system, uh, I chatted with Sean Cahill, who is the Director of Health Policy Research at the Fenway Institute here in Boston. They are a fantastic medical organization that specializes with marginalized communities, minority communities, and the LGBTQ community in particular. Uh, I spoke to Sean for a story on OutSports earlier this month. Uh, story got a lot of good reaction, I think a lot of good information in there, and it is a great, great topic to discuss. Uh, we talked about it with Anthony Nicodemo. A few weeks ago, who's an educator and a high school basketball coach, and he said the coronavirus is really exposing the inequities in our education system. Well, I mean, I think it can be said for everything across our society. It's no secret that we are uh, an incredibly, uh, you know, a society that with a lot of disparity between the haves and the have-nots, to say the least. And this kind of tragedy, this kind of crisis, is exposing all of that. We're finding out uh, we've all. Read the statistic that, what is it, 40% of Americans don't have $400 in their bank accounts for an emergency, but now we're seeing that come to fruition. Another 6.6 million people filed for unemployment last this past week. Uh, Unemployment claims are now at 16 million nationwide, and that number is way low. It doesn't count the people who don't qualify for unemployment. It doesn't count the people who can't get through still to their unemployment offices. So we are, so many of us are so close to the edge and again, the coronavirus is really exposing that like nothing before it. So we talk about that with Sean Cahill and also some possible solutions. So I think a really interesting and a timely conversation. 
and, you know, just as we continue to make our way through this pandemic, uh, you know, I am somebody who religiously watches cable news. I am usually an ardent Maddow viewer, Chris Hayes viewer. Uh, the TV is turned to MSNBC. I have my gin and tonic in one hand, my remote control in the other hand. I am, you know, 27 going on 70. Uh, and that is pretty much the average audience for MSNBC and all cable news channels. But no more. Uh, the last few days in particular, really over the last week, I have completely shut off from cable news. Uh, don't get me wrong. I don't like to be in the dark. I'm still reading the news, but I just can't watch the hysterical panic on our television screens. I'm not saying the information is inaccurate. I'm not saying that hosts like my favorites, Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes, are not doing good, important journalistic work. I do not like to bury my head in the sand. But in this case, like, wake me up when it's over. I mean, I, I just can't I just can't bear the daily panic that is on our television screens every day, and and there certainly are reasons to panic, but many of us are living it. I mean, we are stuck in our houses now for going on a month straight. We know the situation outside. If you read about the news, you're just as informed, if not more informed, than watching those programs, and it, there's no histrionics, there's no hysteria, because remember... It's about ratings, and this stuff is ratings gold for cable news channels from CNN to MSNBC. Fox is a whole different conversation, so we won't even include them in this. Uh, no, my channel, even the best of times, my clicker does not go over to Fox News. But um, I just I just find it kind of odious, to be honest with you. The, the fear-mongering that you see all over television news, turn it off. There is nothing but panic and interminable Trump press conferences on there. Turn it off read a paper, uh, you'll be better informed anyway. That, that's my advice as I'm trying to maintain some semblance of mental sanity. And uh, I say some semblance because I didn't have much mental sanity to begin with before all this started. So you can only imagine how much it's eroded over the last four weeks. Um, another note that we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, it's a topic that interests me, of course, as a sports fan and sports writer, um, <laughs> is when will sports return? And uh, we had a troubling poll come out on Friday from the Stillman School of Business at Seton Hall. Uh, according to this poll, 72% of sports fans say they will not attend a game under any circumstances until a vaccine for the coronavirus is developed. Uh, that, of course, is problematic for those who want sports to return uh, sooner rather than later, to quote the president, because, well, we may not have a vaccine for 18 months. And in fact, former FDA administrator Scott Gottlieb says it will take two years before we have a coronavirus vaccine. And, you know, my take on this is, is the same as it's been. We, we all want sports back. We want the distraction. We want to watch something besides repeats and reruns and Tiger King on Netflix, which has completely jumped the shark. Do we really need another one coming out this weekend to wrap up what? We all just saw the ending. I mean, really? But anyway... Um, and of course, from a, a sign of economic rebirth, we need sports to come back. I mean, these leagues, the four major male pro sports leagues generate 40 some odd billion dollars in revenue annually. Never mind all the restaurants and hotels and the hospitality industry and all the, the sports economy is so, so massive. We need sports back. We want sports back. It would be a sure sign that we are on the road to recovery as a nation 
But it's just not going to happen for a while. It's just not. And I think Chip Kelly put this perfectly. You had Oklahoma State head coach Mike Gundy say ignorantly this week, oh, yeah, we need our kids back here to pump money through the state of Oklahoma. Like, really? No, it's not up to Mike Gundy. It's not up to college football coaches, not up to NFL coaches. It's not even up to the president himself. It's not up to Trump. No, it's about governors, mayors, local officials, health officials. Here's what Chip Kelly said, and it's right on the, right on the money. I mean, if it's not safe for fans to attend the games, then I don't know why it would be safe for players to participate in the games, Kelly said. The NCAA may weigh in on it, but the governors of states and the mayors are going to be the ones who will tell you whether we can do it, because the NCAA can say, hey, you guys are all going back, and if California Governor Gavin Newsom says we're not going back, then we're not going back. And it really is as simple as that, and Newsom said that, over the uh, last weekend, Trump saying, I want the leagues to return sooner rather than later. And Gavin Newsom says, uh, not in my state. I don't think there's going to be football in California this fall. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf also expressed uh, <laughs> pessimism about Trump's uh, shortened timeline for the games to return. Uh, it, it's just not going to happen until the public health officials say okay. And I understand, again, why we want it to occur, but it, 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 you can't just rule by decree here. And we do have a constitution. We do have, a, we do have state rights. And the federal government cannot overrule stay-at-home orders from governors and local officials. So Trump can say, oh, the economy is reopened on May 15th or June 1st, whatever the date is. But, you know, Governor Cuomo in New York, Governor Newsom in California might say, uh, not in my state. You know, not in my state. And uh, I, I, sports, live sports with tens of thousands of fans will be absolutely one of the last things to come back. And I don't know if we're going to have to wait until a vaccine is developed until they come back. And, you know, I think a lot of this is um, is is representative of the current time we're in. You know, I think give it a few months you may see more fans say they're willing to return to games without a vaccine. You know, give us a slow reopening. We're starting to go out to restaurants a little more. We're starting to go out a little more. Take this incrementally. So I don't think that 72% figure is going to stay that high for the next several months. I think, again, as we slowly reopen society, you will see that figure come down. But this poll is just another reminder that uh, sports coming back. Unfortunately, it's not just going to be as quick as a snap of the fingers. Um, but that's enough of me blabbering on. Let's get to someone who knows what the hell he's talking about. Sean Cahill, uh, a really interesting topic, again, on the coronavirus and disparities we're seeing in infection rates. Uh, that's coming up next on the Sports Kiki. As always, thank you for listening. This call is being recorded. And welcome back to the Sports Kiki podcast. Not a sports interview today. Of course, the coronavirus uh, takes precedent over everything these days, unfortunately. Um, we found out a poll from Seton Hall on Friday, as we mentioned earlier in the show. 72% of respondents say uh, they will not consider attending a sporting event until a vaccine is developed. So uh, certainly a long ways away from that, uh, but lots of issues coming up. And to help us break down, I think, one of the more interesting and telling uh, s- s- side plots, if you will, with the coronavirus and how it's affecting minority communities and marginalized communities. We bring on Sean Cahill, who is the Director of Health Policy Research at the Fenway Institute. Sean, welcome to the show. How are you holding up? Good, Alex. Thank you. I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. How are you? Doing all right, especially in comparison to most. You know, it's boring, but if boredom is the worst thing you have going for you during this, uh, I think you're doing okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's for sure. Um, So we talked about 10 days ago 
uh, for an article on Outsports about how minority communities, including the LGBTQ community, could be more are more at risk for the coronavirus. Not that genetically they're more at risk to contract it, but just the environments they're in uh, and some underlying health conditions as well lead them to be more, you know, uh, more, more, you know, it's more prevalent in those communities. Um, I right. think, you know, this week we had a lot of statistics coming out. Uh, New York Times said this a few days ago. In Illinois, 43% of people who have died from the coronavirus uh, are African-Americans, even though African-Americans make up just 15% of that state's population. Uh, in Michigan, similar, 40% of the deaths in that state, African-American, even though just 14% of the state's population. In Louisiana, 70% of those who died are black, even though they make up just a third of the population. Right. Uh, you, you could do these numbers all day long, but the simple question is, why is this happening? Why is, are we seeing these th th this virus take these tolls on minority communities? Right. I think there's several reasons. Um, we have known for a long time that we have striking racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare and in health outcomes in the United States, and this is just one more manifestation of that. Um, so uh, one factor is um, that Black Americans in particular and other uh, people of color have higher rates of certain chronic diseases. Um, and so if you have a chronic disease like obesity, like diabetes, um, it, like HIV, uh, and, and, and uh, particularly if you're a long-term survivor with HIV uh, and have other comorbidities like cardiovascular disease, uh, you're, if you get COVID-19, uh, you may have a more uh, challenging experience with the disease. Uh, and so that's part of what we see playing out, uh, particularly in the black community in the United States. But there are other factors as well. Um, there's uh, less access to health care uh, among black Americans. Um, black Americans are less likely to have health insurance than white Americans. They're less likely to have a regular health care provider. Um, the Affordable Care Act helped bring down uninsurance rates for all racial ethnic groups, so everybody benefited, but we still see about twice the rate of uninsurance in the black community. And mm -hmm. so that's another factor. People don't have a regular health care provider, so when, when the guidance is if you feel sick, call your doctor, uh, if you don't have a regular doctor, you know, that it's, it's hard to know how to, what to do in that situation. Um, there's also high levels of medical mistrust in the black community, partly because of things like the Tuskegee experiment, the syphilis experiment, which many of your listeners may know about. Um, it's also true in Native American communities. There was forced mm -hmm. sterilization of Native American women uh, only about 50 years ago in this country. So, um, so there's a lot of medical mistrust, which is another barrier to accessing care. Uh, and then there's just the racial ethnic disparities in uh, in, in sort of economics in our country and the fact that many black people um, are holding jobs where they have to go into work. They have to go to the supermarket and stock the shelves. They have to drive the bus or drive the subway train uh, and uh, or they have to take the bus or the subway to get to work, you know, and so they are exposing, they are more likely to be exposed to the coronavirus uh, than than um, the, the general population. So those are some of the factors. Yeah, and it really is about socioeconomics. Like in New York City, this came out, I saw this earlier today, Friday, uh, the zip codes with the highest rates of positive tests have an average per capita income of 26 grand. Residents in the five with the lowest rates of coronavirus infection had an average income of over 118,000 
annually. So it really is a socioeconomic issue in the disparities in our healthcare system. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of us who are working from home are at the higher end of the income spectrum. And a lot of people right. who, who are just unable to work from home uh, are at the lower end. And then you have people who are trying to get, who have been laid off, who are more likely to be um, low income uh, and people of color. And they're trying to get access to uninsurance. They call, you know, they, they, they call hundreds of times and they can't get through to a person. Right. And so um, they, they may try to go, you know, in person to see if they can get help. Um, they may be going to the food pantries. Um, you know, there are these huge lines, hundreds of cars in line to get it, get food. Uh, so people are having to go out just to get their basic needs met as well. Yeah. And I do want to talk about that because that's been a, 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 a often repeated line when you talk about a lot of the health consequences when it comes to unemployment and the economic ramifications here. You know, our president, Donald Trump, has said a million times that the cure cannot be worse than a disease. And though, you know, I, obviously he's, he's an idiot. But I mean, I think the point of, you know, there are health ramifications to grinding our economy to a total halt. And do those ramifications at one point outpace the coronavirus? I'm just curious, given your expertise, what your opinion is on that whole debate. You know, we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic, and it's really the worst global pandemic we've seen in 102 years. And so I want to take my advice and guidance from public health professionals. Right. So I listen to what Dr. Anthony Fauci says, what Dr. Deborah Burke says what the Surgeon General says, um, Surgeon General Adams. I, that's who I want to listen to. I don't want to be listening to elected officials, uh, particularly if they are prioritizing uh, you know, things besides public health. And that's what I think the president sure. is doing. Um, I think he's right. being very yeah, irresponsible. Yeah, I mean, he's really being irresponsible. Uh, he wanted to reopen the country uh, two days from now. Easter Sunday. Right, uh, right, you, right. Yeah, you still have, and, and that was just a week or so ago, then he backed off, and now he's talking about the end of the month. And I think that's really unrealistic. And I think it also sends a message, not just President Trump, but some of the Fox News hosts who are basically, um, you know, chomping at the bit to, re quote unquote, reopen the economy. And that sends a message to some folks that, oh, yeah, well, let's get together for Easter Sunday service. You know, what's, what's the risk? This is being overblown. Etc. And that's very dangerous. Um, and people are going to die as a result of that kind of misinformation. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But I was asking about, you know, we, we've spent so much time and rightfully so talking about the public health crisis we have with this pandemic. But what are some public health concerns that could manifest itself from, you know, this massive economic downturn that we have with 16 million yeah. unemployed? And I think that's a low end. It could be as high as 47 million unemployed at the end of this, according to a uh, the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right, Alex, that there's huge health ramifications to the uh, really striking economic hardship that our country is facing and that so many of our fellow Americans are facing. And it looks like, you know, we could take an economic hit that's even worse than the Great Depression, that we may have unemployment levels higher than what we experienced in the 1930s. Uh, and that's just impossible to comprehend when you think about it. Um, so there's definitely, I mean, people's stress level, uh, you know, um, people's anxiety, uh, depression, all, all, there's a huge mental health burden that comes from economic dislocation and worrying about how are you going to 
pay the rent? How are you going to put food on the table? How are you going to feed your family? How are you going to pay for medication? Uh, people are being, you know, we know that so far 16 million people have lost their jobs, at least probably 20 probably million way or more, more yeah. because people, yeah. yeah, it's probably more because people can't get through to unemployment. Um, because they, the, the staffing levels haven't really changed pre COVID-19, um, from what they were pre-COVID-19, but so people are concerned about that, but people are also losing their health insurance because most people get health insurance in this country from their employers. And uh, and so we probably have millions of people who've lost their health insurance. Now, some of the people losing their jobs didn't have health insurance, so they were very vulnerable. You know, in some of the service industries, people working in restaurants often didn't have um, health insurance, but millions of people have lost health insurance. Uh, the, the president was asked, will you reopen the enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act? And, you know, he let Mike Pence answer the question. Mike Pence didn't answer the question. And then President Trump made a very cynical comment about how Mike Pence is a great politician because he didn't answer the question. And so that's the kind of leadership we're getting uh, on that issue. Thankfully, we have, I think it's 13 states which have reopened um, the enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act. So people who lost their employer-provided insurance can try to uh, get insurance through the uh, state exchanges in 13 states, and that's a good thing. Um, but those are some of the concerns. Um, one other thing, though, is that all the other regular routine health conditions that people have and the screenings that they want, like let's say you want to do a cancer screening or any kind of you know sort of routine uh, preventive health, you can't get that screening right now. It's really hard for people to get routine health care because of the focus on COVID-19. And so I think we're going to have a lot of people who get diagnosed late with other health conditions like cancer as a result of what's happening right now. And that's wow. the problem. Yeah, it's, I mean, a couple of things there. First of all, this the coronavirus is really opening up the lid on all the inequities in our society across all facets. And uh, the fact that we still... It tie, you know, in so many states, tie your your health insurance to your job is just so outdated, especially in today's gig economy. And you see that, and you see that today with this. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, yeah. And I, I know in the uh, in the presidential primary, there, there was discussion of you know other other systems where. Um, insurance would not be tied to employment, but where we might look at some kind of a national insurance system like Medicare for all. And I think that uh, people are going to look at what's happening right now and think, well, maybe we should look at that again. You know, maybe we should consider that as an yeah. alternative because um, in the middle of a global pandemic, we don't want to see tens of millions of people thrown off health insurance, but that's what we're experiencing right now. No, and that's it's, crazy. Um, it's, it's, cr another it's crazy. Another thing we're... Uh, Another thing that's happening is people, I know this from personal experience, someone, in, someone close to me is experiencing this. Um, people are in the hospital with COVID-19 and the hospitals are trying to discharge them because it's a, you know, we, we are in a capitalist healthcare system. And, um, and the question is, where do you discharge them to? Where do you send them, especially if they're elderly? You know, there's nowhere to send them. You can't send them to a nursing home or a long-term care facility because they have COVID-19. So why are you chomping at the bit to discharge them? Take care of them. That's what they should be doing. Yeah, but they don't have the beds. It, it's amazing that, you know, we spend more money on defense than like what is the, the next three countries combined, by far the biggest defense budget in the world, and that we were left utterly defenseless to fight this. It's staggering. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I know the focus of your show is LGBT people yes. and sports. And so what, you know, I'm really glad that the racial ethnic disparities in health have been getting attention this week and that the disproportionate burden of COVID-19 on black Americans in particular has been getting a lot of attention. Um, we have been trying to get data on sexual orientation and gender identity yes. of people getting COVID. Yeah. There's, there's no data. I've been, I've been asking around. I've asked with our state health department. They're trying to find out if there's data. Fenway Health will be, it does collect that data, and, and the health centers around the country collect the data. But so it's possible that sometime in the future, we may be able to get some data from the health center network if they're diagnosing people with COVID-19. But it's unclear the extent to which um, testing is happening in the health center system, you know? For yes. COVID-19, there's still a, a huge problem with the lack of testing equipment. Um, uh, so, so, uh, but, um, but definitely we're, we're not seeing from Centers for Disease Control uh, data on sexual orientation and gender identity. And as I mentioned when we talked a couple of weeks ago, there are lots of reasons why the LGBT community is disproportionately vulnerable to having complications if they contract the coronavirus and develop COVID-19, the disease, uh, there's Why? a lot of reasons to, because we uh, have higher rates of some of the risk behaviors like uh, like tobacco use, uh, smoking, vaping, um, substance use. We are more likely, particularly sexual minority women, to have to be either overweight or obese. Um, we, uh, for many reasons, have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, uh, hypertension, um, uh, high, there's some emerging research that shows higher rates of pre-diabetes and diabetes among LGBT youth related to uh, obesity and sedentarism, lack of, um, you know, of, uh, of cardiovascular exercise. Um, and so those are all reasons why we might see LGBT people have a tougher time with COVID-19. Um, we also, about two-thirds of people living with HIV in this country are LGBT people. Um, if you have HIV and have some of the uh, comorbid conditions like, um, uh, um, well, like, like cardiovascular disease, uh, you may have a, a more difficult time. We also see higher rates of tobacco use in the HIV positive population. Um, so those are some of the concerns uh, that we have with the LGBT community. Um, and then it's also the fact that we are less likely to have a regular healthcare provider, particularly women and transgender people in the LGBT community, are less likely to have a routine uh, to access routine preventive healthcare. Um, and so, um, and we have high levels of medical mistrust in our community, certainly among Black LGBT people, but also other people. Uh, a lot of transgender people have medical mistrust based on their experiences in the healthcare system. So, all of those factors could cause a disproportionate um, Burden, not not so much higher rates of contracting the coronavirus, but more difficult experiences with the disease if people develop COVID-19. Uh, and so we really want to see data and see what's happening with the LGBT community in this pandemic, and we just don't have the data. Is it unusual for there to not be data about the LGBTQ community with, with something like this, or, or is this an anomaly in recent history? Well, it's not unusual because uh, data collection is really something that's been happening pretty much in the last decade, collecting sexual orientation and gender identity. I mean, we, at Family, we started collecting sexual orientation data in, I think, 1997. 
family community health center where I work. And uh, I think we, we added gender identity questions uh, maybe a little more than a decade ago. Um, so, so we've been collecting the data for a while. Now, the, like I said, the community health center network, which is serving about 28 million patients, uh, they have been at, they have been reporting on sexual orientation, gender identity for their adult patients since 2016 to the federal government. So I think eventually, from the for the health center population, we'll see some data. Um, but that sort of um, that data is very incomplete. Like in the first year, uh, a very high percentage of patients they didn't have the data on those patients. So um, you know we've been working with our state elder services department here in Massachusetts to get them to ask elders uh, their sexual orientation, gender identity as they come into the elder services system, the data collection is very, very spotty, very limited. Um, a lot of people are not being asked the questions, uh, I think partly because uh, the people asking the questions don't feel comfortable asking them. Right. Um, and so we need much more training to make it happen. So we have some systems that are asking the questions, but uh, it's still optional. Like in the health center network, it's required but in, in um, sort of the general healthcare system, it's still optional. So if a hospital or health center, uh, if a hospital or private practice prioritizes LGBT health and wants to understand what's going on with their LGBT patients compared to their straight cisgender patients, they will be asking those questions and they'll be collecting the data. But, um, but unfortunately, it's just not publicly available right now. It's not being reported. So we'd like to see the CDC provide some information on how this epidemic is affecting our community in particular you know are there yeah. disparities um you know yeah no it'd be very very helpful of course we have data on every other group almost why not why not us absolutely um you've mentioned a few times medical mistrust not just with the uh black community and communities of color but with the lgbt community you mentioned trans uh people in particular explore that mm -hmm. a little bit more the medical mistrust and why that affects yeah. care yeah access to care um well Definitely within our community. So I would say that because of the HIV epidemic, which has been going on now, you know, for 40 years, uh, and because gay and bisexual men are so uh, at elevated risk, roughly 15% of gay and bisexual men in the U.S. have HIV. So, you know, we've been getting, I've been getting HIV tested for many, many decades, and, and most gay men have. And so that's one reason why we tend to be connected to the healthcare system. But lesbian and bisexual women are less likely to be connected to the healthcare system. And one reason is they've experienced discriminatory treatment or insensitive treatment by a provider. You know, so they'll get asked about their, like a young woman will go in to get a physical and will be asked about her sexual health. And, you know, are you on the pill? You know, or, and the, the assumption is that she's sleeping with a guy. And of course, right. most of the time that's true, but not always. Right. So, um, so a lot so for for sexual minority women there's less connection to routine preventive health care partly because of experiences of incompetence or uh insensitivity or discrimination and and that contributes to medical mistrust among sexual minority women and that of course among black sexual minority women latina sexual minority women uh native americans we see higher rates of medical mistrust because those are intersectional populations that also experience, um, you know, ra racial, racially uh, insensitive or uh, exploitive uh, uh, health care, particularly historically. Um, so, and then with transgender people, 
you know, roughly, I think um, one survey that I saw, about half of the transgender uh, respondents said they experienced discrimination in healthcare or uh, inappropriate treatment, or they had been denied a screening, you know, uh, because uh, like they're a trans guy, and but they want to get a, a mammogram, and they're told they can't because they're because they're you know their gender marker is male, things like that, and so that contributes to medical mistrust in the transgender community, um, and that's definitely a big factor. And so, in you know the whole assault on truth that we've been seeing for the last half decade, in particular with president with candidate Trump and then President Trump uh, talking about fake news and you can't trust this, you can't trust that. Now at this moment where we have to come together as a society to fight this pandemic, there's a lot of people out there who don't trust vaccines, who don't mm -hmm. trust the healthcare system, who mm -hmm. don't trust the people, the leaders who are leading the yeah. country. And that's a real problem, you know? It, it's, so there's it's, a broader yeah. problem of mistrust beyond medical mistrust. It's so dangerous. And one thing that I hear, you know, everyday people say is, ah, the health professionals one day say don't wear masks. The next day they say do wear masks. So, ah, I mean, what do they know? What's your response to people who say stuff like that? Right. Uh, I, I would say that uh, I do. I still go to the CDC website, the Centers for Disease Control website, and look and see what they've posted. Um, I, I still trust key people at the CDC who I've known who've been working on the HIV epidemic and working on uh, sexual health, STI prevention and sexual health promotion for decades. Um, I have a lot of faith in, in people at the CDC um, and uh, at, in health and human services, uh, particularly Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, um, you know, because I've known them, I've seen their work. And so I would not just write off, you know, the fact is that uh, the guidance is based on, should be based on data and science and evidence. And that's constantly changing, you know? Right. So, for example, I think when we spoke two weeks ago for your, uh, uh, for your website and print publication, right. um, we talked about the fact that the, the understanding is that this is transmitted primarily through droplets, through sneezing and coughing. And that's why we have this six-foot, you're not supposed to get within six feet of somebody. And then it can also land on surfaces and then be on, live on those surfaces for, for hours or even days. And so that's why you have to wash your hands all the time, not touch your face, et cetera. Wear gloves if you can when you go outside, sterilize things. So that's the guidance up until a couple of weeks ago. Now, there was, um, there's a, a guy who's uh, leading up a, a commission at the National Academy of Sciences, Dr. Harvey Feinberg, who used to chair the Harvard School of Public Health, and he told the White House, I think it's about a week and a half ago now, that uh, this virus could also be transmitted, possibly, it could also be aerosolized, and it could be transmitted through uh, breath and through just talking to somebody. Um, and wow. so that's important information, and that, I think, is why the public health establishment has said you should probably wear a mask whenever you go outside. Um, so if you go out and work in your yard um, and you don't, you know, you, you have a small yard, you should be okay without a mask on. But if you go out walking and you're going to be walking near other people, you should probably have a mask on at this point. Yeah. And that's because our information about how the virus is transmitted has evolved and has changed. So that's, that's how I interpret that. I don't, I don't take from that, oh, you can't trust anybody or they don't know what they're talking about. I take from that that 
the information has changed, we have more information now, and that's why uh, they're recommending that we wear masks when, whenever we leave the house. Uh, I know you're not an epidemiologist, Sean, but you've been studying this very closely, obviously. Uh, what are you going to be looking for over, let's say, the next next month? We have some statistics that the curve is flattening a, a bit in Seattle and California areas that took action a lot sooner than cities here in the East Coast. What, what are you going to be looking for over the next month or so here? Well, I, I'm hopeful that we are reaching the peak uh, and that we may see a, a flattening and then a, and an eventual drop-off. Um, but I think, I agree with Dr. Fauci, this is not the time to let down our guard. It's not the time. I think that's the reason that's happening is because people are social distancing and people are following the guidance of the public health authorities. And I think we have to continue to do that. What Dr. Fauci said this morning and the last several days is, this is not the time to let, let down our guard. This is the time to increase, to put our foot on the pedal and kind of increase acceleration of these mitigation um, methods. And I totally agree with that. So I hope that we can start to see a drop off uh, and you know maybe we'll be able to um, make some changes, you know, in the summer in terms of what we're able to do. But I don't think we're going to get back to normal anytime soon in terms of, you know, people's ability to travel and that kind of thing and even uh, going to work. I think we're going to be working remotely, working from home uh, to the extent possible over the next for the next few months, at least. So I guess 50,000 people cramming into a stadium to watch a baseball or football game, probably not in the foreseeable future. Um, I don't think so. I, I think that's not until we get a vaccine. And wow. um, the vaccine is at least a year to a year and a half away. Sean, uh, Kate, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's all. I mean, I think it's, it's unfortunate, but I think, um, like I said, this the last time anything close to this happened was 102 years ago. We have to get through this and then, you know, we can get back to doing things like sporting events and and weddings and, you know, all those uh, joyful group activities that, that we that we are unable to do now. Sean Cahill is the Director of Health Policy Research at the Fenway Institute. Sean, thank you so much for the time. Really enlightening conversation. Great. Thank you, Alex. Take care. So thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Sports Kiki Podcast and a major thanks to Sean Cahill from the Fenway Institute for taking the time and coming on the show and I think just giving us a lot of great information, a great conversation, an informative conversation. Uh, it's just so important in these times, as we talked about at the end of our interview, with all of the misinformation out there, the distrust in our institutions, including the media, perhaps first and foremost the media these days, um, it's just uh, so important to get the accurate information out there. And I could talk about issues like this all day, and it just it is just so absurd in this country that your health care is tied to your employment. It's completely out of date. If you actually read why it happened, it's interesting. In the, after the Great Depression, companies, of course, did not have as much cash on hand. They could not offer the wages they once did. So to attract workers, they offered health care and other benefits. And that's how we got this system. Well, that's great in the mid-20th century when everyone has a job and stays at the same company for 20, 30 years. Uh, not the case anymore, obviously. It is just woefully out of date. It keeps people tethered to jobs. It punishes people for losing jobs through no fault of their own, as we're seeing during this crisis. It's just, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess of a system. And I fear 
that as we inch, an emphasis on the word inch, but as we inch towards recovery here, we are going to see the story of two Americas. We are going to see one America that is represented in the mainstream media that is back and getting going again and we're on the road to recovery and then we're going to see another sect of this country that is still really devastated. And my worry is this federal government heading into an election year doesn't help them to talk about the devastation that the coronavirus could leave behind a lot of these communities. I feel, I fear they'll just get ignored and forgotten about. And oh, the coronavirus is gone because we're not talking about it, so it no, no longer must exist, which of course could not be further from the truth. We know that pandemics rise and fall, they ebb and flow. Uh, so it's just, uh, that is one of my big fears as we head towards as well, the disparity in recovery and how that will be portrayed by this administration, certainly, and by the media as well. Uh, so again, a big thanks to Sean Cahill for joining us on the show. If you have any guest ideas with no sports going on, obviously we can be a little more liberal with our topic choices. Drop me a DM. I'm always available on Twitter at AlexRemer1. My username again is at AlexRemer1. Or find our podcast account, Sports Geeky Pod. On Twitter, uh, you can check out fun selfies of my Corona mustache that I'm posting on there. Uh, thank you again for listening. Talk to you next time. So long.